Welcome back to Will Wright Catholic Podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. Uh, today we're looking at the first of Pope Benedict XVI's encyclicals, uh, the encyclical letter Deus Caritas Est, or God is Love in Latin. And uh, this is part one. As I was going through Deus Caritas Est, I realized that there's a lot of good stuff to say. I, I love the whole document. But I, I figure, you know, we're going to need at least two parts for this one uh, to make sure that the episodes aren't too long. Um, so anyway, this is this is part one. Basically, the outline of the document is there's an introduction and then a part one, a part two and a conclusion. So today's episode, we're going to get into the intro and part one. Now, an encyclical is a circular letter that the Pope writes to the whole church. Pope Benedict XVI released the first encyclical of his pontificate on December 25th, 2005. And the title is Deus Caritas Est in Latin, which is God is Love in English. And the official English title of the document is On Christian Love. Now, the pontiff believed that this message was both timely and significant in a world where, as he says, the name of God is sometimes associated with vengeance or even a duty of hatred and violence. And remember, he's writing this at 2005. This isn't long after the 9-11 attacks. And so he thought, you know, it's timely and significant to speak about love. What does God actually want from us? And so my endeavor in this podcast, this episode, is to give an introduction to this marvelous encyclical from one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, someone who I very much have uh, have come to deeply appreciate and admire. Uh, when this letter came out, I was only 14 years old, and I definitely did not read it at the time. But later on in college, when I read it, I was absolutely blown away. My love, my gratitude, my appreciation for the late pontiff, may he rest in peace, has only continued to grow. And so I'll be using this document, uh, the document itself rather, as the blueprint for this resource, this episode. So we'll be touching on each section. In this present work, what I'm doing here, what I'm recording for you is not exhaustive. It's, it's barely going to scratch the surface. But hopefully, it'll offer you easier access to the writings of Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, sometimes he can be a little difficult to understand. He's absolutely a theologian. He's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and so it's important for us to be able to keep that in mind, but approach it and and not give up and really sift through because it's so beautiful. It's so profound. Uh, so I'm really glad that you're with us on this first of the encyclicals of Pope Benedict. I plan on going through uh, a few of the others. He has three that he released in his pontificate, and then one was released uh, by Pope Francis early on in his pontificate that Pope Benedict had written. Uh, I'll be covering all of them except for Caritas and Veritate. Uh, that one is sort of a recap of something that Paul VI wrote earlier. So I really would just want to treat the three that are on the theological virtues of love and then hope and then faith. Uh, so anyway, this is part one of Deus Caritas Est. It's wonderful to have you with us. If you haven't yet, I'd ask you to go to willwritecatholic.substack.com and sign up for the newsletter to get directly to your email, every podcast episode, every article that I write, and then to be able to share those with your friends and family on social media. Uh, I've decided not to be posting so much to social media uh, and uh, just sort of letting the subset grow naturally. So I, I really am relying on you uh, to help me spread the word. If you find this to be a helpful resource, 
please consider sharing it. I really appreciate it. So without further ado, let's dive into Deus Caritas Est. The Holy Father begins his letter on Christian love with one of the most profound descriptions of Christianity I have ever read. And I'm maybe that sounds dramatic, but I'll let you be the judge. Here we go. This is from paragraph one. Being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. In a lot of ways, this is the summation of all of the work of Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. Theological clarity was a gift of the late Cardinal, who always found a way to bring any conversation crashing back to Jesus Christ and our communion with him and with others. Truly, this is the decisive direction to which our life is given, heaven, right? That communion with God and communion with others. But how do we get there? And, and it begins with this encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And this theme of encounter and exchange is part and parcel of the good news. In a world that associates God with vengeance or a duty of hatred and violence, as the Pope says in his introduction, he offers us an important reminder. He says, since God has first loved us, love is now no longer a mere command. It's the response to the gift of love with which God draws near to us. Now, this document is split into two main parts. The first part is an exploration, and the second part is concrete, but both are interconnected. And in this first part, in this episode, we'll be looking at that exploration of love. What is love? And then uh, next time, we'll be looking at the concrete, uh, how does the church make love known and visible to the world today? So the Pope begins, part one, the unity of love in creation and in salvation history. And the subheading for this one is a problem of language. In part one, Pope Benedict speaks to the unity of love in creation and in salvation history, and he begins by addressing this linguistic problem. Anyone who said the phrase, I love pizza, can intuit the main problem that he's getting at. The word love today is frequently used and misused. Benedict puts it this way. He says, quote, let us first of all bring to mind the vast semantic range of the word love. We speak of love of country, love of one's profession, love between friends, love of work, love between parents and children, love between family members, love of neighbor and love of God. Amid this multiplicity of meanings, however, one in particular stands out, love between man and woman where body and soul are inseparably joined, and human beings glimpse an apparently irresistible promise of happiness. This would seem to be the very epitome of love. All other kinds of love immediately seem to fade in comparison. So we need to ask, are all these forms of love basically one, so that love in its many and varied manifestations is ultimately a single reality? Or are we merely using the same word to designate totally different realities? And so this is the linguistic problem that Pope Benedict uh, gives us. How are we using the word love? Is it a single reality? Or are we using the same word to designate totally different realities? And so he goes on to speak of eros and agape. In the New Testament, in the Greek language, there's three main types of love. Eros, which is the sexual love between spouses. This is where we get the word erotic. Uh, there's agape, which is uh, 
A-G-A-P-E, agape, which is unconditional love, and then philia, which is fraternal love. This is where we get the name of the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Many scholars have drawn a sharp distinction between eros and agape to the point where they the two seem mutually exclusive, right? You have either this erotic love between spouses or the unconditional love of God of agape. Pope Benedict gives us a theological masterclass in showing us the difference in unity of these two terms. He begins by saying this, quote, the Greeks, not unlike other cultures, considered Eros principally as a kind of intoxication, the overpowering of reason by a divine madness, which tears man away from his finite existence and enables him, in the very process of being overwhelmed by divine power, to experience supreme happiness, end quote. See, for the ancient Greeks, the, the divine madness of Eros needed to be purified, And in many ways, it's seen as a corporeal type of love, a bodily passion. However, the Pope goes on and teaches this. He says, it is neither the spirit alone nor the body alone that loves. It is man, the person, a unified creature composed of body and soul who loves. Only when both dimensions are truly united does man attain his full stature. Only thus is love, eros, able to mature and attain its authentic grandeur. Christian faith has always considered man a unity in duality, a reality in which spirit and matter compenetrate, and in which each is brought to a new nobility. True, eros tends to rise in ecstasy towards the divine, to lead us beyond ourselves, Yet for this very reason, it calls for a path of ascent, reunification, purification, and healing. End quote. So at this juncture, we begin to see that the Christian view of Eros is less about divine madness and more about ascending to God and allowing him to purify us. In the poetry of the biblical book of Song of Songs, Benedict teaches us that two different Hebrew words are used. The first is sort of this insecure, indeterminate, and searching love. The other is closer to what we might call agape. He writes this in paragraph six. He says, love now becomes concern and care for the other. No longer is it self-seeking, a sinking in the intoxication of happiness. Instead, it seeks the good of the beloved. It becomes renunciation, and it is ready, even willing, for sacrifice. See, neither type of love is, is static, right? It's either ascending or descending, this eros love of, of ascending love, and then agape of this descending love. But as Pope Benedict says, love embraces the whole of existence in each of its dimensions, including the dimension of time. So this makes sense that love wouldn't be static. It would be, divine, it would be dynamic. It would be moving in some way. So the philosophical and theological debate about the nature of Eros and Agape sees Agape as this descending oblative love and Eros as an ascending possessive or covetous love. But Benedict argues that these two cannot be completely separated. He says the more the two in their different aspects find a proper unity in the one reality of love, the more the true nature of love in general is realized. Which makes sense. We cannot always give. We have to also receive. Uh, We can think here of the book of Exodus. Moses goes up to the tabernacle time and again to dialogue with God. 
But it's only from that place, it's only then that he can emerge to be of service to the people. So if we're, if we're to understand love, we have to understand the God of Holy Scriptures. And so Pope Benedict outlines what he calls the newness of biblical faith. And he compares it to other religions of the time in this next section, especially the ancient Greek society. And he says this, he says, there is only one God. All other gods are not God, and the universe in which we live has its source in God and was created by him. Consequently, his creation is dear to him, for it was willed by him and made by him. The second important element now emerges. This God loves man. So far, thus we have one God who loves man. And this is pretty peculiar. And the gods of Greek mythology are horrendous. Uh, I mean, if you've read any Greek myths, you know this is true, right? They, they might seem benevolent at times, but other times they're downright malevolent and oftentimes simply demonic. And of course, they don't, they don't exist. They're not real uh, unless they're merely personifications of nature or natural forces or simply demons tricking men. But the one God with a capital G, he's different. He's real. He's sovereign. And the ancients even began to grasp this first part, that God is the object of desire and love. But that second part, that God loves us, this is particular uh, to the Jewish people. Of course, we, we know that it's because it's been revealed by God to them. As Pope Benedict eloquently explains, he says, The divine power that Aristotle, at the height of Greek philosophy, sought to grasp through reflection is indeed for every being an object of desire and of love. And as the object of love, this divinity moves the world, but in itself it lacks nothing and does not love. It is solely the object of love. The one God in whom Israel believes, on the other hand, loves with a personal love. His love, moreover, is an elective love. Among all the nations, he chooses Israel and loves her. But he does so precisely with a view to healing the whole human race. God loves, and his love may certainly be called Eros, yet it is also totally agape. End quote. So the love of God in the Old Testament, at times, if you read the Old Testament, it's boldly erotic, uh, especially in the prophets. Right? They speak of betrothal and marriage. They even see idolatry as adultery or prostitution. And so Pope Benedict rightly points out that God's love is Eros, properly speaking. But he shows us that it's also agape because it is, as he says, bestowed in a completely gratuitous manner without any previous merit, but also because it is a love which forgives. Anyone who's read the Old Testament knows well that Israel breaks her covenant with God often. It's only right that God should judge and repudiate her. Imagine if you were God. Imagine what you would do after the 15th thousandth time that Israel has broken the covenant with you. I mean, I know I would annihilate mankind and say, all right, back to the drawing board. Let's try again. But Benedict answers this this way, right? What, what would we see instead of utter annihilation of mankind? Benedict gives his answer in paragraph 10. He says, God's passionate love for his people, for humanity, is at the same time a forgiving love. It's so great that it turns God against himself his love against his justice. 
Here, Christians can see a dim prefigurement of the mystery of the cross. So great is God's love for man that by becoming man, he follows him even into death and so reconciles justice and love. God is the absolute and ultimate source of all being, but this universal principle of creation, the logos, primordial reason, is at the same time a lover with all the passion of a true love, end quote. And of course, that, that idea of the logos is, is the Greek term for word. It's the word uh, through which all things were made. The word that, that St. John uses in his gospel is logos when he says, in the beginning was the word logos, and the logos was God, and the logos was with God. Right? This idea that, that God's wisdom, this eternal word, uh, it's more than just a speech or phrase. It's it's really a very, very expansive idea in Greek terminology. But as Christians, we know that Jesus is the Logos. He is the lover with all the passion of a true love. And so God loves us with a perfect passion from the first moment of creation, right? Even before time, right? Because God created time. But in the in God, the love of Eros is, as as Pope Benedict puts it, supremely ennobled. Yet at the same time, it is so purified as to become one with agape. Right? So we can imagine this descending love, this ascending love, and they sort of become one. Right? And in this great mystery of God's love, we have perfect ascending and descending love. When we enter into this love, we become one with the lover of our soul. But this union, Benedict says, is no mere fusion, a sinking in the nameless ocean of the divine. It is a unity, he says, which creates love, a unity in which both God and man remain themselves and yet become fully one. Right, St. John of Damascus uses the uh, understanding of a, a iron being put into a fire, that as it be- takes on the fire, it becomes fire, right? It glows red hot. And so we can say that it becomes fire, and yet it remains just an iron. If you take it out of the iron, it's still an iron. So in some way, that sort of shows us this unity uh, between God and man, and yet we remain ourselves, and yet become fully one. God made us in his image and likeness, and he himself is a perfect community of persons. Right? God is, is perfect and sufficient in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we see that Adam, the first man, is alone. In his solitude, God fashions for Adam a helper, the first woman, Eve. And here we hear one of the most romantic lines in the whole Bible. Adam says to his new bride in Genesis 2.23, he sees Eve for the first time and he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Even in non-Christian religions, we see shadows of this completion of man, so to speak. In a myth related to us by the Greek philosopher Plato, man is originally spherical, complete, and self-sufficient. But as a punishment for pride, Zeus splits him in two, and thus man strives for his other half. There's this searching for completion, this searching for his other half. And the Bible doesn't speak about punishment in Genesis chapter 2, but there's clearly the idea that, as Pope Benedict puts it, only in communion with the opposite sex can man become complete. Therefore, even erotic love, that is eros, 
is rooted in man's nature and it directs man towards marriage as a natural end here on earth. And there's no equivalence to this outside of the biblical literature, says Pope Benedict. And so where do we go from here? Well, we know that the Old Testament faithfully transmits the revelation of God to us, but it's incomplete, right? In the New Testament, in Jesus Christ, the love of God actually takes on flesh, which is fitting why, why Pope Benedict decided to release this document on Christmas, uh, on the Feast of the Nativity, on December 25th, 2005. Anyway, as, as Pope Benedict puts it in paragraph 12, he says, In the Old Testament, the novelty of the Bible did not consist merely in abstract notions, but in God's unpredictable and in some sense unprecedented activity. This divine activity now takes on dramatic form when in Jesus Christ, it is God himself who goes in search of the stray sheep, a suffering and lost humanity. End quote. We know that Jesus speaks in parables, but these aren't mere words, right? When he says that he's the good shepherd, right? He is the proof of God's love. He literally shows us in the flesh, the full revelation of God to man. In his death on the cross, we see, as, as Benedict puts it, the culmination of that turning of God against himself, in which he gives himself in order to raise man up and save him. This is love in its most radical form, says the Pope. By contemplating the pierced side of Christ, we can understand the starting point of this encyclical letter, God is love. Of course, quoting from 1 John 4, 8. So flowing from the pierced side of Christ flows the blood of the Holy Eucharist and the water of Holy Baptism. The Church Fathers very clearly saw this immediately. And so it's the Holy Eucharist, right? the source and summit of the Christian faith, which draws us into Jesus' self-offering. In our Holy Communion with Him, more than just statically receiving the incarnate Logos, we enter into the very dynamic of His self-giving, Right? In the Holy Mass, the Son is offering himself to the Father in the Spirit, and then we're invited to take part in that sacred reality. And in some sense, the Greeks, the ancients, perceived this, that what really nourishes man is not food, it's the Logos, eternal wisdom. And in the Holy Eucharist, the Logos has truly become our food. The Word of God, the eternal Word of God has become flesh. And in the Eucharist, this incarnation, this mystery is, is perpetuated forward through eternity. And so the erotic imagery of marriage between God and Israel, between God and his people, his bride, especially in the church, this fulfillment of Israel, is realized in a way previously un inconceivable, according to Pope Benedict, in the Holy Eucharist. And I, I think he actually knows what that word means. Right? This isn't the Princess Bride. Like it, it, it would be absolutely inconceivable for those in the Old Testament to see that the new covenant would bring us actually receiving the Logos into our very body and soul that the person of Jesus Christ would be contained in the Holy Eucharist under the veil of a sacrament. It, it is inconceivable. It's beautiful. But the Holy Eucharist also mystically takes on a social character. For as Pope Benedict says, for in sacramental communion, I become one with the Lord like all the other communicants. 
So thus we begin to experience a foretaste of heaven, which is union with God and union with all of those men and women in union with God. Right? As Benedict writes in paragraph 14, he says, Union with Christ is also union with all those to whom he gives himself. I cannot possess Christ just for myself. I can belong to him only in union with all those who have become or who will become his own. Communion draws me out of myself towards him and thus also towards unity with all Christians. We become one body, completely joined in a single existence. Love of God and love of neighbor are now truly united. God incarnate draws us all to himself. Which very beautifully brings us to the final section of part one, which is on love of God and love of neighbor. Love of God and love of neighbor, Benedict says, have become one. In the least of the brethren, we find Jesus himself, and in Jesus we find God. But this nature of love and its meaning in biblical faith lead Pope Benedict to to ask two questions. One, can we love God without seeing him? And two, can love be commanded? Right? The ad- objections would seem to be that no one ev- has ever seen God, so how could we love him? And love seems to be a feeling that's there or it isn't. So how can it be commanded? We can't just will ourselves to love someone. But in answering these two questions, Pope Benedict artfully leads us back to loving our neighbor, leading to love of God and vice versa. To the second objection, he says that love of our neighbor is a path that leads to the encounter with God and that closing our eyes to our neighbor also blinds us to God. He answers the first objection by saying, true, no one has ever seen God as he is, and yet God is not totally invisible to us. He does not remain completely inaccessible. And then Pope Benedict goes on to remind us that God is visible to us in a number of ways. In a a lengthier quote, he says this, he says in paragraph 17, in the love story recounted by the Bible, he comes towards us. He seeks to win our hearts all the way to the Last Supper, to the piercing of his heart on the cross, to his appearances after the resurrection, and to the great deeds by which, through the activity of the apostles, he guided the nascent church along its path. Nor has the Lord been absent from subsequent church history. He encounters us ever anew. In the men and women who reflect his presence, in his word, in the sacraments, and especially in the Eucharist. In the church's liturgy, in her prayer, in the living community of believers, we experience the love of God, we perceive his presence, and we thus learn to recognize that presence in our daily lives. So these are just a few ways the Pope says that that God makes himself known to those who seek him. Benedict does not leave us only with a litany of responses to the objection of an invisible and aloof God. He goes on to say this. He says, He has loved us first, and he continues to do so. We too then can respond with love. God does not demand of us a feeling which we ourselves are incapable of producing. He loves us. He makes us see and experience his love. And since he has loved us first, love can also blossom as a response within us. But this love... This love is not merely a sentiment. God God loves us and is unchanging. For mankind, love as a sentiment, as an emotion, as an idea, is a marvelous first spark. We could put it that way, but it's not the fullness of love. So what is love? 
truly it's, it's a decision. It's an act of the will. As Pope Benedict puts it, referencing the Roman solace, the, the phrase is idem veleaque idem nole, to want the same thing and to reject the same thing. To want the same thing and to reject the same thing. This was recognized by antiquity, the Pope says, as the authentic content of love. The one becomes similar to the other, and this leads to a community of will and thought. And so from this, right, this communion of will increases in a communion of thought and sentiment. So as we grow in love of God, our will and God's will will increasingly coincide. Right? In Benedict's words from paragraph 17, God's will is no longer for me an alien will, something imposed on me from without by the commandments, but it is now my own will based on the realization that God is in fact more deeply present to me than I am to myself. So I want to take us back for a moment to remember how Benedict begins this letter in the introduction, right? Paragraph one, he says, being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. So what does this encounter with Jesus Christ, our God-man, do? Well, Benedict beautifully paints us a picture. He says this in paragraph 18. He says, Love of neighbor is thus shown to be possible in the way proclaimed by the Bible, by Jesus. It consists in the very fact that in God and with God, I love even the person whom I do not like or even know. This can only take place on the basis of an intimate encounter with God, an encounter which has become a communion of will, even affecting my feelings. Then I learn to look at this other person, not simply with my eyes and my feelings, but from the perspective of Jesus Christ. His friend is my friend. Going beyond exterior appearances, I perceive in others an interior desire for a sign of love, of concern. This I can offer them not only through the organizations intended for such purposes, accepting it perhaps as a political necessity. Seeing with the eyes of Christ, I can give to others much more than their outward necessities. I can give them the look of love which they crave. End quote. More than merely being a more beautiful way of viewing the world, this love must be put into practice if we're to love God. And in many ways, this is what we'll get into when we read part two of Deus Caritases, the concrete. But as Jesus says to us, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of these least of my brothers, you did it to me. So we need to serve others if we're to love God. But likewise, if we're not seeking to encounter God, we'll never see anything special in the other. Right? As Benedict teaches, he says, if I have no contact whatsoever with God in my life, then I cannot see in the other anything more than the other, and I'm incapable of seeing in him the image of God. But if in my life I fail completely to heed others solely out of a desire to be devout or to perform my religious duties, then my relationship with God will also grow arid. It becomes merely proper but loveless. Only my readiness to encounter my neighbor and to show him love makes me sensitive to God as well. 
Only if I serve my neighbor can my eyes be open to what God does for me and how much he loves me. And Pope Benedict ends part one of his letter by saying this. This is from paragraph 18 as well. He says, love of God and love and love of neighbor are thus inseparable. They form a single commandment, but both live from the love of God who has loved us first. No longer is it a question then of a commandment imposed from without and calling for the impossible, but rather of a freely bestowed experience of love from within a love, which by its very nature must then be shared with others. Love grows through love. Love is divine because it comes from God and it unites us to God. Through this unifying process, it makes us a we, which transcends our divisions and makes us one. Until in the end, God is all in all. As St. Paul says to the Corinthians in his first letter to the Corinthians. And so in this first part of Dave's Caritas Est, Pope Benedict XVI teaches us about the unity of of Eros and Agape in creation and in salvation history, even though they seem different, that ascending and descending love fuse into one, just as we fuse into God while retaining our individuality. And he speaks also of the ambiguity of our modern sense of the word love, and he outlines the differences between Eros and Agape and how they become one in God. We see the unique newness of the biblical faith, the love of a personal God, and we see how Jesus Christ makes the love of God visible and tangible. And we learn more about the double commandment of loving God and loving neighbor, which results from a transformative encounter with Jesus Christ, making not a double commandment, but a single commandment. And in part two, we'll continue to walk through this masterpiece on Christian love, which focuses on the practice of love by the church as a community of love. So I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I, I hope that you do go back and now that you have a little bit of a, a framework, read it, read the document, read Deus Caritas Test. It's, it's so beautiful. And uh, I think it's, it's still timely today, right? This was written um, 18 years ago as of this recording, and it's still timely and it always will be timely, right? There's that tagline that, uh, that those in society like to say, you know, love is love, love is love. And it doesn't have any meaning. But what Pope Benedict is talking about here, it's more than a sentiment, more than a feeling. It's a, it's a decision. It's about this unity of Eros and Agape coming together that has a real completion of man as its end, ordered towards our eternal end, our, our heavenly and of union with God and union with all of those in union with God. And so let us press onward. Let us grow in this love of charity by using the gift of, of love that God has given us and then asking for a greater share of it all to his glory. And so if you, if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's been a help to you, please share it. And uh, I hope that you subscribe and I hope that you uh, join us back for part two of Deus Caritas Est. I'm also very excited to share that coming up, um, if you're listening to this in the next couple of weeks, I will be teaching a class beginning on February 28th for this Lent of 2023. Uh, it's going to be five weeks long in person, and it's on uh, the Holy Mass. I'll be walking through, you know, first, what is the Mass, and then walking through the four main parts of the Mass of the introductory rites 
liturgy of the word, liturgy of the Eucharist, and then finally the concluding rites. And uh, you can hear a bit more about that uh, in-person class, which I will be recording and putting on to these uh, episodes as well. They'll be podcast episodes for you all. Um, so if you can't make it, no problem. You'll be able to hear them uh, here on the Substack and on Apple Podcasts or Google uh, or Spotify, wherever you're listening. Um, but you can also hear more about those. I'm going to be on an episode of the Catholic Conversation podcast with Stephen Becky Green through the Diocese of Phoenix. Uh, I think that's dropping February 10th, 2023. Uh, so check that out as well if you'd like to hear an interview I gave uh, talking about the Mass. Uh, so lots of great things coming up here and we'll write Catholic. I, uh, I hope to be putting out more content soon. I'll be getting to work on part two uh, very shortly. And uh, if you have any questions or comments or ideas for other things that you'd like me to cover, I'm very, very open to that. So please email me at will.write.catholic at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And if you would, if you're still listening at this point, as I ramble on, please feel free to uh, rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a review. That'll really help me grow the platform. Uh, so I really appreciate it. Uh, let's end in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.